All right. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Swapnil Malekar. I'm one of the biotech analysts here at Piper Sandler. Um, and it is with great pleasure I want to welcome uh, Laura Sepp Lorenzino, who's the Chief Scientific Officer uh, for Intellia Therapeutics. Thank you, Laura, for the time today. Yes, thank you for inviting us. Okay. So before we jump into the lead asset, which everybody wants to know what's going on with 2001 and 2002, like why don't we like spend a little bit of time and discuss the platform okay. um, and tell you what, what's going on there. So let's start with the XVivo platform, which has not been like quite like the talk of the town, if you will. So we see like that at ASH uh, OTQ923, um, Novartis is presenting data from the sickle cell, which is your XVivo platform. So like help us like what kind of data are we expecting there? And like from a competitive perspective, how is it different from other CRISPR um, players in the space who are like who have much more advanced programming using kind of similar technology? Yeah. So, so actually, that was our first IND, and that's a program that's being run by Novartis. So, you know, it, they they have full responsibility for the conduct of the trial and and uh, the data. So at ASH, they're going to be releasing data on, I believe, two patients, uh, you know, sickle cell disease. Um, again, the, the trial is you're introducing an indel to upregulate the expression of fetal hemoglobin to, you know, counteract the, uh, the sickle uh, trait. Uh, the levels that they're achieving on editing, they are translating into therapeutic um, effect on sickle cell disease. So, you know, it's for us, it's the third program where, you know, using our editing platform where we're seeing positive uh, clinical data, and, you know, that's exciting. Um, you know, the other thing that's important is that, you know, for, for that program, it uses our guide RNA discovery uh, and qualification. So that means demonstrating that we have guide RNAs that have the precision, the specificity to act on the intended you know, locus, uh, but not anywhere else, right? And this question about, you know, off-targets and, you know, structural variants, I think it, it gets, you know, uh, addressed by, you know, with the quality of the cell product. Um, you know, and I was chatting with, you know, investors uh, early today. Uh, what I like about the sickle cell disease programs, whether it's the one we have with Novartis or, you know, the Vertex uh, CRISPR one, is that you're really pressure testing the system. 
you're introducing edits in a few cells which are now engrafting into a patient. And you're asking those cells to multiply millions, billions of times to regenerate the hematopoietic system, right? So, you know, if there were any, you know, again, errors of, you know, CRISPR or unintended consequences, you would see it, it would manifest, right? And the fact that, you know, I'm building on this, you know, the exocell, the CTXO1 data, right? Now we have patients that, you know, are completely, quote unquote, you know, cure with long responses, you know, again, it feedbacks that, you know, we do know how CRISPR works, we do know, uh, you know, how to select guide RNAs that are specific, and they do what's Mm -hmm. So, like with with with, with Bluebird having data, uh, then there is CRISPR therapeutics. Like, what, how do you view the bar for successes for this program? Like, do you like significantly need to beat the the, the front runners in order to stay competitive? And like, like help us about the, the commercial strategy here. You know, and again, that's that's being driven by Novartis, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to make sure I'm not speaking for them. Um, you know, there is a number of companies now, Bertzell and, you know, sickle cell disease. Um, you know, XSL will likely get approved. Um, you know, what's going to happen next vivo, I think it's going to be incremental. Um, where we at Intelia see the opportunity, the major opportunity to impact the disease globally is on the ability to do these edits not on a VESH ex vivo, but do it in vivo after a simple IV administration of, of the therapy. So, you know, that's a program that's on the research, you know, discovery stage for us, but we're very keen on, mm -hmm. you know, resourcing that properly because we believe that that's what's going to be game-changing in this disease. Uh, and as you know, sickle cell disease is a global disease, right? So it's not just countries like ours that can afford expensive therapies with hospitalization and cell therapies. We need, you know, as a drug development community, have a solution that, you know, will reach all the patients with the disease. Got it. And then, like, moving on to the to the next set of program, um, allocarties, like, the, the response, like, for other companies has, has been underwhelming, if you will. So, like, help us understand how is Intelia approach different in, in terms of allogenic CAR-Ts, and do you think, like, this this modality ever has, like, a chance of, being as good as or like beating the autologous approaches? Yeah, so I think that there are two categories of things that need to be improved in the, you know, CRISPR engineer uh, cell therapies, whether they are CAR-Ts or TCRs. Uh, one is on the engineering aspect of it, right? So is our experience that using electroporation as a means of introducing the CRISPR enzyme uh, carries by itself a number of undesired uh, consequences, uh, starting with a significant hit on viability, DNA breaks, uh, the inability of the cells to expand, um, you know, cells that are being exhausted to start with. And then because if you're trying to do more than one edit, because of those limitations, you need to do them all together at the same time, which leads to significant chromosomal um, you know, abnormalities because there is a lot of translocations. So we had kept that as, you know, a design feature we wanted to avoid, and we've developed a, a different type of some engineering where we're using a lipid nanoparticle as the means of delivery of the CRISPR machinery. That's really gentle on the cells. It allows us to um, temporarily 
separate different editing events. So if we want to do an insertion of the car or DCR, we could do that separate for any other knockout or any other insertion. That minimizes genotoxicities and um, you know, structural variants uh, uh, being created. Uh, but also, because it's so gentle, it allows for the cells to have high viability, to grow, expand, you know, to, to great numbers, and have a you know, good number of uh, uh, quality attributes. So with that as a backdrop, right, that's the technique that we're using, it really um, allows us to introduce as many edits as they are required to, A, generate an allogeneic, you know, cell, to which we can now engineer, whether it's with CAR Ts or with T cell receptors uh, alone or with immune enhancing edits that will allow that cell therapy to work, for example, in solid tumors mm -hmm. that, you know, has been really an elusive goal. For ALO, what, you know, we've seen with, with others is that, you know, they, uh, the, the, the platforms that, you know, are being used they do not address the requirements for a cell to be truly allogeneic. So, you know, and getting a bit technical, right, you need to make sure that the cell, you know, that the allo cell doesn't harm the host. Uh, and on the other hand, you need to ensure that the host doesn't eliminate the cell therapy. And that has not happened. And now there is clinical data from, you know, others demonstrating that the quote-unquote idle cells do not last in the patient. And if they do not last, they're not going to have long-lasting responses. Mm -hmm. You may have, you know, some short-term, complete or partial responses that are not going to last. So what we've done is uh, we've learned how to engineer the cells, again, properly that allows us to prevent any harm to the patient and rejection by the host. And key to that is, you know, ensuring that natural killer cells mm -hmm. do not eliminate them. Got it. Um, we've been able to do that. So with that platform now, we have a number of, uh, you know, programs, including NTLA-601, where it's, you know, it's a CAR-T program, and, and others to follow for hematopoietic malignancies, but importantly for solid tumors. Got it. And then the lead asset with Allocart is uh, 6001, like you're in IND enabling activities. Like yes. Can you talk about the timing of CTA IND filing? That's number one. And number two is we saw like recent setback uh, with the clinical trial hold for, for worse therapeutics in terms of IND. So like what kind of read through does that provide and like what kind of regulatory interactions are you having for IND filing of, 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 of your products? So starting with 601, uh, you know, we haven't guided uh, on, you know, when that's going to go to the clinic. And, you know, as I said, we also have other programs. So, you know, we, in 2023, we're going to be releasing more data, including our yearly guidance. So stay tuned for that. With regards to preparing for successful regulatory submissions, um, you know, there are a number of uh, considerations. Uh, and of course, I don't know what happened to VERB. I guess we're all going to find out when they get the letter with, you know, exactly what the agency was asking. But, you know, for us, we, we do have two INDs, you know, that have been approved, right, for, you know, the Novartis uh, mm -hmm. and for NTLA-51. So, you know, we do understand from the agency, um, you know, what package they're expecting with regards to on and off targets and, you know, characterization of the edits 
again, having two successful INDs reviewed and approved, right, as, as expected. For uh, our in vivo programs, um, you know, for NTLA 2002 and 2001, you know, next year, you know, both are, we're aggressively advancing both programs mm -hmm. uh, globally, and that's going to include, include the U.S. Um, you know, and we have a pretty good idea of what the agencies is, uh, you know, are looking for. In addition, what's really, really helpful is that we have clinical data, right? We mm -hmm. have tens of patients now who have been dosing, and including that, you know, that clinical data, um, you know, duration, you know, safety database, uh, that really helps enhance the package. Got it. Okay. That's fair. Um, and then uh, the next is the alpha-1 antitrypsin program. So the, the key question, again, like going, I think I asked this question, like, some time ago. Why do you need, like, two different programs for lung and liver? Like, why can't we just, like, have one gene insertion program that could address both the manifestations of the disease? So the... Um uh, you know, for our technology, we're looking at uh, 31. So there what we're doing is we're inserting the wild-type uh, alpha-1 functional uh, gene. And the place where we're inserting it is in the albumin gene, which is a highly expressed gene. So just by inserting a few cells in the liver, um, you know, we believe that we will be able to achieve normal levels of, um, you know, of alpha-1 antitrypsin, which right now there is no uh, approved therapy or therapy in development that really have demonstrated mm -hmm. that these can be sustained, right? So this is invariable pharmacokinetics, mm -hmm. right, or pharmacodynamics, where there is, you know, just uh, expression of that gene all the time. Um, so for, you know, for other applications, um, yes, you would need to ensure that you achieve those levels. Mm -hmm. And that may require that you edit, you know, the majority of the cells, and mm -hmm. that may or may not be possible. Yeah. And then, like, that 11 micromolar level, that hypothetical number, is that... Is no, that we're going to double that. Okay. <laughs> okay, got it. All right, so now moving on to the, to the lead asset, 2001. Um, can you tell us, like, how many patients have been dosed with the fixed dose regimen of 55 milligram, and, like, when can we expect to see the first set of data from these fixed dose patients? So we completed, um, you know, the, the cohorts uh, mm -hmm. dosing, and we're going to be releasing that information um, early next year. Got it. Okay. And then, like, what was the rationale for selecting 12 patients in the in the cardiomyopathy trial and then eight patients in the polyneuropathy trial? Like, what, what, why is there, like, that difference? Uh, so we're looking at uh, severity in, in cardiomyopathy, right? Mm -hmm. So we have NH, uh, you know, the New York Health Association class 1, 2, and 3. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that we capture both. Looking at the mean, yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, and then, like, again, like, in terms of next steps, um, any any feedback or like any updates that you have in terms of regulatory interactions for cardiomyopathy or polyneuropathy trials um, that could start in U.S. and uh, do you think that the next set of clinical trials would be potentially registrational? So for 2001, um, you know we're gearing to to go to a registrational mm -hmm. uh, trial, right? And, and again, that's going to be a global trial. Um, and with regards to U.S. 
you know, we, you know, we are, again, we, we think we have a good idea of what the agency is going to be uh, looking for and, you know, ensuring that our package, you know, mm -hmm. completely addresses uh, all their requests. Got it. And then, like, we, we saw data from BridgeBio that did not meet the six-minute walk test at 12 months, but Apollo B from Alnylam, that study succeeded. And Intelia is, like, more like Alnylam than BridgeBio. We get that. But, like, based on these one success, one failure, like, how, how are you planning to run your clinical trial? Like, if you could, like, provide a little bit color of duration, endpoints, and like any, any, any color that you can provide yeah. there. Look, we, we are lucky to some degree, right, that we can learn from those who came before us, mm -hmm. right, with success, you know, partial success. It was good, but not perfect. So there is still room to, to do better and, you know, bridge by, right? So that informs not only on, you know, the patients, you know, the patient population, what to look for, ensuring that you have appropriate numbers, you know, across, you know, your groups to have power, you know, for the effect size you want to see. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and with regards to, to endpoints, I think that particularly for cardiomyopathy, right, so you need to be looking at, you know, outcomes mm -hmm. as, you know, mm -hmm. as a strong endpoint. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're going to be looking at you know, imaging and, you know, pro-BMP and all these other, you know, six-minute uh, walk tests and other things, but it's important that, you know, you demonstrate clinical benefit and, you know, that's, uh, mm -hmm. again, you know, cardiac mortality and morbidity, hospitalizations, mm -hmm. that's going to be important. Got it. And with, with tafamidis approved in U.S., right, like a lot of patients might be on background therapy, so like, in terms of you spoke about outcomes, like like other trials might need to upsize the trial to to get to number of events. So like, do you think there would be a problem with like enrollment of the right population given tafamidis approval? And like, would your pivotal trials mainly enroll patients ex-US? No, I think that there is. You know, and first there are more and more patients being um, you know diagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's not that patients are going to be limiting. Uh, and there are going to be patients who are going to be on tafamidis and, you know, many others who are going to be tafamidis uh, uh, naive, right, or, or, you know, patients who didn't gain enough uh, benefit. Uh, and because the trial is going to be global, right, so um, we also have the opportunity to go to other geographies where, you know, these therapies are not approved, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's important, again, is to have a wide variety of, you know, patients with different experiences, you know, and treatment, because, you know, that will not limit your, your label, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have as broad a label as possible. Got it. Okay. And then the, the one key question that always comes up is now with the siRNA technologies, you could, like, dose these patients once every quarter or once every six months potentially. And you see a pretty good control of the disease. So, like, what is the appetite in the community for, like, a permanent gene editing approach uh, in presence of other um, efficacious therapies? Like, is there any updated market research, KOL feedback that you can share with us? Sure. And, and you know, of course, we, we pursue both, right, market research and, you know, KOLs. Um, you know, what the data has shown is that the deeper the TTR reduction is going to translate to better efficacy. 
So you correctly stated that, you know, you see stabilization of the disease, but, you know, our goal is to go beyond that with the probability of not only, you know, slowing disease progression, but potentially reversing it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we've done a number of, you know, quantitative system pharmacologies, mining data that's available, including petition data. And we've seen that, you know, the lower the TTR that you can get is greater than proportional benefit with regards to, you know, clinical endpoints. And that's why we believe that, you know, with, you know, deeper knockdown, mm -hmm. uh, we will be able to have better clinical outcomes. But like in terms of clinical outcomes, how much additional efficacy do you expect to see, like going from 80, 85% that's seen with, with, with Patisiran and like with 90%, 92% with... That's not how I interpret the data. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to look at time. You know, the remember that, um, you know, with SARNA, right? So you could, you know, the pharmacodynamics is going to wane over time, right? Mm -hmm. So 86 is, you know, one week after um, the last dose. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean that, you know, that's what they've seen six months after it. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. And, you know, with us, it's once and you knock it down, it's stable. So mm -hmm. you're going to be stably reducing TTR. You know, now we see 90, you know, patients, 92, 94, 93%, all the patients in the cohort, you know, that's the mean, with some patients getting to 98% knockdown, mm -hmm. right? So that's significantly greater. Mm -hmm. And we don't know the exact correlation of, X percent of TTR knockdown leading to how much improvement in the MNIST score or like outcome-wise, there is no like one-to-one -one correlation there. No, but again, when you look at, you know, again, quantitative system pharmacology uh, type mm -hmm. modeling, uh, there is a greater than proportional benefit on MNIST plus seven. Got it. Uh, the lower you go with TTR knockdown. Got it. Okay. That's I mean, fair. The greater you go with, the mm -hmm. less TTR you end up with. Yeah. And then speaking about 2002, the HAE program, so you, the, the data was pretty impressive at the ACAAI meeting. So following that data, we hosted a KOL call uh, to, to, to understand the implications of this therapy in terms of treatment paradigm for HAE. But they said, like, currently, Taxiro remains to be the, the leader in the space. And with Taxiro, they practically see zero attacks in patients. Yes, there is some injection burden to it. But the application of 2002 could be limited to patients that are like very severe or still have breakthrough attacks with Taxiro, which is a very small patient population. So they just wanted to get your thoughts on, on that feedback. Well, that's based on one KOL feedback, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So we, we are canvassing, you know, KOLs, you know, uh, as well as, you know, other bodies, right, for input. And, uh, you know, what what we see, and we see it on our clinical trials, right, where we have, you know, patients, you know, over-prescribed, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, trials. So there is a lot of interest, right, on having a, a, a candidate that, you know, can really fully stop down the attacks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, like with every new technology, I think that there is going to be this curve of adoption, right? Mm -hmm. So the more data that becomes available with regards to efficacy as well as safety, more patients are going to be uh, feeling comfortable and, and physicians, right? And keep in mind that many of these 
HAE physicians are allergists, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't really deal with you know severe severe disease. So, um, so do, again, you think, do you think the applicability is mainly in center of excellence or like how do you think about it, the, the community doc? I think that eventually it's going to reach to the community doc. Got yes. it. Okay. And then like in terms of dose selection, you have data from 25, 50, and 75 milligram doses and you are going to select two doses to move to phase two. So like what's, what's the criteria here? Because you see like that 60% knockdown, that, that threshold, it's crossed by, by three doses. So like, like, how do you select those and how much safety is a concern in terms of those selection? So, you know, with regards to safety, the three dose levels were pristine with regards to safety. So that's not really, you know, under consideration. Um, at the lowest dose, we did see uh, patient variability, right, which mm -hmm. is, is expected, right, that, you know, at the lower doses. So, um, you know, for the phase two, we want to have two doses to understand the pharmaco again the pharmacodynamics and the translation to to efficacy. Um, so I cannot guide to what the mm -hmm. doses are going to be, but one is going to be lower than the other. <laughs> okay, That's but not fair. too low. Okay. <laughs> and then last question is phase two. Like, can you talk about like how many patient trial design and like is there a chance for phase two be potentially registrational? Like given the technology. Yeah, no, it's it's too early to uh, to talk about the design, but you're going to learn more in you know uh, due time. Um, and wait, what was the last thing? About a registrational trial. No, I, we think it's to the the current phase two is going to be you know ten patients on drug mm. at sorry twenty patients ten and ten uh, at two those levels. Mm -hmm. That's just not enough, you mm -hmm. know, for a registration Got trial. It. But you know, these uh, based on Taxiero and Ionis, you know, and others, these trials are not that mm -hmm. huge, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fair. I think we are towards the end of our chat. Um, Thank this you. is great. Thank you very much, and we look forward to more updates regarding USIND and next steps for the lead assets. Thank you for the opportunity, and thanks.
Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining our Piper Sandler Healthcare Conference live here in New York City. My name is Yaz Rahimi. I'm a senior biotech analyst here at Piper Sandler. Really excited to be moderating this panel. The title of the panel is Heart to Heart with CB Players to Discuss the 2023 Outlook. We have lots to cover, um, and I also encourage you, if you haven't met Greg and Jeff and Faraz, you know, um, let the front desk know so that you can get a one-on-one -on -one with them. They are very, very busy, so uh, we'll try to facilitate a meeting. But so, team, uh, one of the questions that I think we should start off is talking about why invest in cardiovascular companies in 2023 and beyond. Um, I guess. Or another way to think about it, what makes CV Therapeutics special in regards to an investment opportunity versus other therapeutic areas? Would you like me to start, yes? Yeah, that would be wonderful. So I, again, I'm Craig Granos. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at, at Lexicon, and I've worked in uh, a number of different therapeutic areas over the years, and the last uh, six, seven years or so exclusively in cardiovascular, and I've been uh, fortunate to be involved in FDA approval of several drugs in the CV space. And when you think about where the unmet need is in the United States and globally, it's in cardiovascular disease. The number one killer of Americans is cardiovascular disease. There is one MI every roughly 36 seconds in the United States. Um, the rate of cardiovascular disease actually increased during the pandemic.